Welcome to Focus in Sound, the podcast series from the Focus newsletter published by the Burroughs Welcome Fund. I'm your host, science writer Ernie Hood. My guest on this edition of Focus in Sound is Dr. Blossom Damania, Associate Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Medicine and member of the UNC Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center. In 2006, Blossom was named a Burroughs Welcome Fund investigator in the pathogenesis of infectious disease in support of her research into the role of signaling proteins in the pathogenesis of viral-associated cancers, such as Kaposi's sarcoma-associated herpes virus, or KSHV. She is also a Leukemia and Lymphoma Society research scholar and has received major support from the V Foundation, the American Herpes Foundation, the American Association for Cancer Research, and the American Heart Association. Blossom, welcome to Focus in Sound. Thank you, Ernie. We don't typically think of cancer as an infectious disease, or at least most people, I think. And I think many people may still have difficulty wrapping their heads around the concept that viruses can cause cancer, although it's certainly become well-established that that is the case. Could you give us a quick overview of that association? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it's been pretty underappreciated by the general public, um, the role of viruses in cancer. Usually viruses are associated with things like flu or Ebola, and there actually have been a number of human viruses that are associated with human malignancy, and these viruses usually establish lifelong latency in the human population and normally don't cause much of a problem, but under conditions of um, immunosuppression, such as people infected with HIV or people taking uh, immunosuppressive therapies in order to get a transplant, for example. It's under those types of circumstances that these viruses can manifest themselves and have oncogenic potential. I see. Well, in your research, of course, you're seeking to elucidate the underlying mechanisms at work in the specific case of the association between the KSHV virus and Kaposi's sarcoma, as well as some other cancers. And you've had good success in unraveling the elements of that association. But before we talk about those findings, I'm curious about whether you see that work as a model for describing the etiology of viral-associated cancers overall. Yes, I think that um, many of these viruses, although they're very different from each other, they use very similar mechanisms or pathways to actually induce the transformation process or the oncogenic process. So I think that understanding how one virus can induce transformation opens a window into how other oncogenic viruses in the human population also cause cancer. So for example, there are several signal transduction pathways, which are essentially pathways that our cell uses to proliferate or stay quiescent or not grow. And what the virus does is that it modulates or changes or manipulates those pathways so that the virus is able to either stay latent and hidden from the host immune system or um, replicate itself and disseminate throughout the host's body or infect a new individual. The virus has viral proteins that it comes with that can modulate these host signal transduction pathways. And 
the same signal transduction pathways that are modulated by one virus uh, may also be modulated by other oncogenic viruses. The proteins they use to modulate these pathways are different, but the pathway modulation is the same. For example, if we can find a signaling pathway that's uh, modulated by KSHV, but it's also modulated by other um, oncogenic viruses like Epstein-Barr virus. Once we understand the pathways that the virus deems important enough to modulate, we can perhaps identify new drug therapeutics to block those pathways or prevent the virus from doing that. I see. Your work actually lies at the intersection between two scientific puzzles, the virus-cancer connection and the mysterious tendency of some viruses, such as herpes viruses, to lie dormant in an infected person's system, sometimes for many years. The KSHV virus is well known to be associated with Kaposi's sarcoma, but you've made significant progress in uncovering what reactivates the virus from its dormancy. Right. Tell us about your findings on that. You're right. Um, herpes viruses establish lifelong latency in the human host. We may be infected when we are 5 or 10 years old, and once infected, uh, we have the virus with us for life because there's no cure for herpes viruses. There are drugs out there that will stop their replication, but they do not eject the virus out of the body. So once infected, you're infected for life. We've been trying to understand how this virus persists for so long and so successfully in an individual. And one of the hypotheses we wanted to test was during your lifetime, say you live 70 years, you're likely to be infected by a wide number of pathogens, viruses, bacteria, uh, fungi. We asked the question, how does secondary infection with these other pathogens affect dormancy of the herpes virus that's lying latent in, in a cell. Um, in order to do that, we looked at proteins called toll-like receptor proteins, which are sort of the guardians of the cell in an infectious process. These proteins are the first proteins that actually recognize an incoming pathogen, whether it's a virus, a bacteria, or a fungus. They sort of alert the cell to the fact that it's being invaded by a foreign pathogen. And when they alert the cell, they activate several intrinsic mechanisms to fight that a secondary pathogen infections. For example, it makes a lot of interferon, which sort of helps to kill the incoming pathogen and also kill the cell as a result. It's clear that herpes viruses are very successful in escaping that initial TLR or toll-like receptor response. They somehow manage to escape that initial primary response to the incoming pathogen and establish themselves latently or uh, dormantly in the cell. And they escape the immune system as a whole at that point, right? right? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. They're very successful at doing that. But other pathogens may not be. So, for example, influenza virus doesn't establish lifelong latency. So you get infected with the virus, your body reacts to it, gets rid of the virus, and in a couple weeks you feel normal again. We wanted to know when, when you have secondary pathogen infection with things like influenza, what happens to herpes virus that's lying inside the cell? And so we actually screened all the toll-like receptors, which are the sensors of secondary pathogen infection, and found that when you activated two specific toll-like receptors, TLR7 and TLR8, you could actually get the herpes virus to reactivate itself and replicate. 
and it actually then replicates and spreads in the body. So this is a mechanism that the herpes virus is used to subvert an immune pathway, which is important for pathogen infection, but it takes advantage of that by actually using that signal to actually replicate itself and then spread to other naive cells that have not been infected. This is sort of a survival response of the pathogen, of the herpes virus, to incoming secondary infections. I see. So how does that that reactivation and replication through the body apparently tie into the development of cancer? I understand that KSHV encodes certain genes, for example. Right. That's an interesting point. I think the replication aspects of the virus and the oncogenic aspects of the virus have to go hand in hand because without one or the other, you wouldn't have lifelong persistence, you wouldn't have transmission through the human population, and you wouldn't have the cancers arising in the context of infection. I think what's happening is that the virus needs to balance the replication aspects of its life cycle with the latent or dormant aspects of its life cycle. And it's generally thought that the latent or dormant aspects of the life cycle are associated with the cancer process or transformation process, but that the replication part of the life cycle is required for not only dissemination and persistence through the human population, but also that several of the replicative proteins actually induce growth factors and cytokines, which are important for growth of the cancer. So these two different aspects of the viral life cycle contribute towards oncogenesis. But without the replication cycle or the latent cycle, you can't have the cancer developing or the virus persisting through the human population. Population. So they sort of go hand in hand. So it's almost a, a perfect storm that develops. Right, yes. In, yeah. in that signaling event. Right, yes. Blossom, I know that Kaposi's sarcoma is known mainly as an often deadly complication of HIV-AIDS. Is that the result of the combination of a compromised immune system and that secondary viral infection that you were referring to, which activates this cascade associated with the toll-like receptors? Yes, I do believe that immunosuppression with HIV is a key factor in the development of Kaposi's sarcoma, which is the leading cancer that HIV patients manifest and often die of. Mm -hmm. And it's a skin cancer, right? And it's a skin cancer, but it's not just on the external extremities. It can be internal, so the lining of your lung or uh, gastrointestinal cavity, your colon, those places can all develop Kaposi's sarcoma. It's just you can't see it. And a lot of times patients die of those internal KS lesions because they go undiagnosed um, oftentimes until it's too late. Or untreated, I imagine. Um, Yes. Yes. We think that immunosuppression with HIV is is really a very important factor for development of Kaposi's sarcoma. I mean, people who are normal or seemingly healthy and don't have any sort of immunosuppressive disease still develop KS, but it's much more infrequently than an HIV-infected individual. And just to give you an appreciation for the difference, if you're HIV positive, you're 20,000 times more likely to get Kaposi's sarcoma than if you're HIV negative. And then comparing immunosuppression with HIV to just immunosuppressive therapy that transplant patients normally take. For a transplant patient, you're about 600 times more likely to get Kaposi's sarcoma than if you're not taking immunosuppressive drugs. Whereas with HIV infection, it's 20,000 times more. So something about HIV infection is really accelerating the pace at which a person can develop this uh, cancer. So, Blossom, what are the potential clinical implications of your Mm -hmm. findings? Does this new knowledge give any potential new targets or strategies for therapies? Um, Yes. We've been examining uh, pathways that are required for the virus to survive in the infected cell. 
And one of these pathways is very important to prevent cell death and enhance cell survival. We've been looking at several compounds that actually inhibit this pathway and therefore induce cell death of the infected cell, which would, is what you would want. We've been studying this at the bench as well as using animal model systems to study how these uh, compounds would affect the cancer induced by the virus. And we've had some good success using that. Uh, we're currently trying to put together a clinical trial to test this out at UNC and other places mm -hmm. and test whether these drugs will be efficacious in curing cancers associated with this virus. So are you working with some of the uh, translational departments here yes. at UNC? Yes. I'm working with several physician scientists and clinicians at UNC hospitals in the hematology oncology group, and we're trying to get a clinical trial going to test these drugs. Well, that's terrific. We'll certainly be uh, keeping an eye on that and yes. hoping for a great success. Yeah. Uh, Blossom, tell us a little bit about your background and, and what led you to pursue this particular line of research. I knew I wanted to do research when I was an undergraduate. So I was at Mount Holyoke College from 89 to 92, and I had an outstanding teacher, a professor in biochemistry, Dr. Sue, and she really instilled a passion for research and science in me. And that uh, made me realize that doing this as a career would be something that I would love to spend my time on. So I applied to graduate school, and I went to the University of Pennsylvania, and that's where I started working on viruses, and that's where it all started in terms of looking at how viruses can transform cells, how they can activate pathways that are required for the virus to survive, but as a consequence, also results in the cell being transformed and becoming carcinogenic. I think the end result of viruses is that they don't want to induce cancer, but they need particular pathways in order to survive inside a whole cell. And so they manipulate those pathways because they need those pathways to survive. But as a result of that, you get the cell being also transformed. I don't think the virus's intention was to cause the cancer. Its, its intention was to just persist and survive. That understanding, I think, first occurred to me in graduate school, and I, I realized that I wanted to pursue that further. At the time when I was applying for a postdoctoral fellowship, KSHV, uh, Kaposi sarcoma-associated herpes virus, had just been discovered in 1994. And there was a lot of things that were unknown about it. There were a lot of things to do. The people who discovered it, Yuan Chang and Patrick Moore, had uh, sequenced the viral genome. There were more than 84 genes to work on. And so it was a very exciting time, a lot of unknowns, so a lot of things that we could research. And so I decided to do a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard Medical School in the lab of uh, Ron DeRosier, understanding how KSHV and associated herpes viruses were involved in the transformation process. I started off being a very basic researcher, but the more I, I learned and I read about the diseases associated with KSHV, and it's not just Kaposi sarcoma, there are two other lymphoproliferative diseases, which are cancers of blood cells, in this specific instance, B lymphocytes, called primary effusion lymphoma, or PEL for short, and multicentric Castleman's disease. And 
importantly, with PEL, which is primary fusion lymphoma, the prognosis for people who have this disease is very, very bad. So they have a survival time of less than six months once they're diagnosed. That made me realize that this is not just an abstract disease that I'm studying at the bench, but something that maybe I can make a difference for. I see. Well, it sounds like viruses and KSHV in particular are just endlessly fascinating. Yes. <laughs> Where yeah. is your uh, research headed from here, Blossom? I think we continue to try and understand the things that govern KSHV biology, how it manages to remain dormant, and if there's anything we can do to sort of uh, make its presence known to the host immune system, that would be one way we could perhaps find some sort of therapy that would help the host immune system combat the virus infection. Uh, additionally, we're also looking at viral genes that are involved in the oncogenic process and also trying to identify um, new drug targets that we could manipulate or whose effects we could negate in order to prevent the cancer from forming. And then thirdly, we're also looking at drugs that can inhibit the virus cancers once they're formed. So three different aspects. First is finding targets that would alert the host immune system to the virus infection. So that's at the very beginning. Um, and then middle of the road would be to identify drug targets that inhibit viral genes from doing their thing, which is promoting cancer progression. And then if you already have the tumor, to find drugs that can actually ablate it. So at three different levels, we're trying to identify mechanisms and target viral proteins. Well, Blossom, it's just been fascinating to learn about your work. And uh, we certainly wish you the best of luck for uh, continued success. It's very important what you're up to. Thank you. And Thanks. we appreciate you joining us on Focus in Sound. I love being here. Thank you. <laughs> We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Focus in Sound podcast. Until next time, this is Ernie Hood. Thanks for listening.